Uh, thank you, Sarah and uh, Noah, for sharing, uh, for reading that for us. Um, and thanks to the worship team, uh, to Rich and Dawn, for joining us today. That was uh, a wonderful surprise. I'd heard that, uh, that they were going to be in attendance today, but I had no idea that they would be uh, part of the worship team. Um, <laughs> I had to think, 20-odd um, years they served here. I, uh, I, there was three or four there in the middle that weren't odd. Um, the reality is, is, as I was sitting there thinking about our topic, that you know, the fact that we're studying, that we're looking in Sunday school and then we're looking in our worship service about kind of turning, kind of looking at ourselves in an effort to change who we are and to improve the way that we face our community and confront society around us. Rich and Dawn are a very um, significant part in that transition of who we are as a congregation and as a leadership staff. So I, I thank you guys for, for, for making this series possible, really. Um, and what is this series? Uh, this morning we're continuing our series on ripening. It's our study of the fruit of the Spirit and how that we can produce, develop, uh, and encourage that fruit in our lives, both individually and collectively. Uh, as Pastor Carl stated in our opening uh, sermon of the series, our hope here is to create an awareness of, of how different the fruit of the Spirit is from, from the noise and the chaos uh, of the society around us. Right now, our society in particular is one where tensions are, are high, political uh, views and motives are very much at the forefront there's a competition of ideas for, for what our values and our standards should be, and those ideas are spoken frequently and very loudly. Um, in fact, I, I saw a news story this week. Apparently, apparently, there are people in this country that are not happy with our president or our Congress. Yes, I, it was on the news, so it must be true. Um, now, I mean, that's, it, it's gotten so that good Mennonites can't even... Can't even have a card party. Can't even host a card party. I mean, you get out the cards, you, you deal rook or pinochle or spades, and inevitably somebody said, what was Trump? <laughs> Goes crazy right there. Political nuts. Um, the, the fact is we think as Americans that, uh, that this is a new concept, but the reality is politics have been a blood sport in our country ever since General George Washington said no to being king and yes to being president. Um, there's nothing new under the sun, the writer of Ecclesiastes said. So it's not, it's not that terribly crazy. But at the same time, we need to address the way that we, uh, the way we face outward. And I, think, and I think that we collectively believe this as well, that it's possible, it's possible for followers of Jesus Christ to be different. Even in the middle of a political conversation, or better yet, a political debate... It's possible that we can display the influence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. It's possible to display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in any conversation, in any situation. And one thing that I want to remember or remind you, as Pastor Carl did, this is not something we do in our own power. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? It's not something that we produce on our own. The Holy Spirit produces this in us, 
And so this sermon and this sermon series is not an encouragement to, to be better or to try harder. What we're, what we're really encouraging to be is, to, is to, be, to be fertile soil for the Holy Spirit, to be, more, to be more like Him, more open and receptive to Him, to be more Christ-like. And uh, one final point, I'm in danger of sounding like a grammar teacher here, but I want to remind you that it is a single fruit of the Spirit, okay? It's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Um, there are a group of, of attributes or traits or qualities that are one fruit in the same way that, say, a coconut can be brown or white or hard or rough or tasty or chewy or creamy if you're drinking it. They all describe the same fruit, okay? So um, I, I read a quote in one of the Bible commentaries. I love this quote. Uh, I think I have a slide on this. It says, a cluster of qualities, the fruit of the Spirit is a cluster of qualities, each of which reinforces and finds expression in the others. So you can't have love, but not joy. You can't have patience, but not goodness. They're, they're a bundle, okay? Like your progressive insurance, it's a bundle. You get it all, okay? So with that being said, this morning, our, uh, our focus is on the, the trait or the attribute of gentleness. So what is gentleness? Uh, like any, any modern-day... Uh, Western civilization individual, I, I went to Google, and I Googled gentleness. Um, and you know how the Google page will display people, it has a people also ask box. You can see it right there. See the first line? People also ask, what do you mean by gentleness? Um, and I like that so much that that's how I derived my sermon title this morning, which is, what do you mean by gentleness? I think it's an interesting point. Um, there you go. What you talking about, Willis? Um, I think it's an interesting point because I think, I think we, we know gentleness when we see it, but it's harder to define exactly what it is. Um, the online dictionary, if we go back to the previous slide, it says that gentleness is the quality of being kind, tender, or mild-mannered. But Paul, when he's writing to the Galatians and the Holy Spirit, as he inspired Paul, must have meant something different than kindness because that's one of the other traits. I went to the Bible dictionary, basically said the same thing. But when I looked at the, the base word, the Greek word, uh, that really kind of hit my, uh, my button for this. Uh, the Greek word that's translated gentleness is preates, uh, and it means displaying the right blend of force and reserve, avoids unnecessary harshness, yet without compromising or being too slow to use necessary force. So, what I would like to posit for you today is that gentleness requires power, position, authority, or force. Power, position, authority, or force. Now, what do I mean? Uh, family has their second child, newborn child, and big brother, big sister comes in to visit mom and dad. And uh, you don't ask the baby to be gentle with big brother, do you? No. No. But you definitely, early and often, ask big brother or big sister, be gentle, be, gen be careful, watch the head, because the big brother has the power and the position and certainly the force to do something other than be gentle. Another example, 
Uh, Mom has, uh, has a child at home that misbehaves, little, little Bobby or Sally, and she sends them to their room. And she says, you're going to wait there until your father comes home. So dad comes home, and uh, mom tells him what happened. So he, he's heading to the door. And right before he heads in, she says to him, be gentle. Why does she say that? Because he has the power, the position, the authority, and certainly the force to walk in there and do something very not gentle, very harsh, or to be gentle and tender. Third example, you go to the dentist, you sit in the chair, that funny little chair, and you say, please be gentle. Why do you do that? Because that dentist, he or she has a tray of 25 implements of torture right there next. And if that's not enough, he's got power tools. You know, you want him or her to be gentle, right? So, for our purposes this morning, I say... Gentleness requires power, position, and authority or force in order to be practiced. In fact, when it's used in Galatians chapter 5, I think by definition, it is the setting aside or placing in reserve of that power or force until that power or force may be necessary. So, now let's look into our text this morning. Um, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We read the second half of it. I snuck in here last night and put a partial bottle of water up here, and some very fastidious person cleaned that up for me, so I had to get my backup bottle. Um, and I think Jody Garber may have put a little Don Q in that one. Um, no, uh, that's pure water. Um, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 begins in the first verse with the birth of Jesus, the nativity scene that we're all very familiar with, the Christmas story. Um, and it ends with verse 52, which is where it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. So he's 12 years old or older. It says in verse 41 that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. As This morning, uh, as I was having breakfast, I, I got my phone out and my Bible app, and I, I hit the play button. I let the, I let the Bible app read me the chapter. And as I'm listening to it, I thought, this chapter is as much about Joseph as it is about Jesus because it's talking about how fastidious his religion was. He, he went to every festival. He, went, he, took his, he took his son to the temple on the, on the eighth day to be consecrated. The prophet Simeon, the, the prophetess Anna, um, it's, it's talking about who, who, Luke, who, uh, who Joseph was. It says he went to the festival every single year. So my question to you why does Luke choose to tell us about just one year? Why does he tell us about the 12th year? What's so significant, in other words, about Jesus' 12th year? Well, my, uh, my belief is that, is that Luke uses a tremendous economy of words to communicate a great amount of truth. What is not obvious to us, but, but would have been very obvious to the Jewish reader, is the significance of a Jewish boy's 12th year. When a Jewish boy turns 13, he enjoys the rite of passage into manhood. Today we call that a bar mitzvah. I don't know if they did uh, 2,000 years ago or not. But 
On his 13th birthday, he's thought of a man, he's treated as a man. The expectations of him are those that one would have of a man. So in his 12th year, in his 12th year, he undergoes an intense uh, year of training, tutelage, apprenticeship, usually under his father. I'm sure because of what we've learned about uh, Joseph in this chapter, how fastidious his religion were, I'm sure that it was under his father. So this is the year where Jesus would have apprenticed into his father's business, carpentry. We know that was true. This is the year where he would be taken alongside and, and Joseph would be teaching him, hey, th- this is what it means to be a man. This, this is what I expect you to look like. This is what I want my son to look like when he grows up. Um, this is what it looks like to be a member of our extended family. This is what it looks like to be a Nazarene, to grow up in Nazareth. This is our values. This is what it looks like to be a Jew, to be an Israelite. So he's in this, this year of, of intr- intense apprenticeship. And this particular traveling to the Passover would have been the same thing. This is the year that Joseph would have spent probably a, a much more intense time telling him exactly what the Passover stands for, reminding him that at that first Passover, Moses instructed all the children of Israel to, to kill an unblemished lamb and to prepare that lamb in a, in a certain way for dinner and to take the blood of that lamb and to paint it onto the doorposts of the place where they resided, all in an effort to protect the family inside from the 10th tribulation that, that God sent to the, to the Egyptian people and so that the angel of death as it came through the camp, would pass over, thus the name, would pass over that home and spare the firstborn child, firstborn male child, and the firstborn of all their animals as well. That's what the Passover was about. So this is the year that that would have happened. So all of this subtext, all this stuff we just talked about, is understood by the Jewish reader when they read verse 42, and it says, Jesus was 12 years old, and they attended the festival as usual. That's institutional knowledge. They already know all this stuff. So what happens next? Mary and Joseph pack up their things. They head north. They spend a day traveling. They sit down for dinner, and Jesus never shows up. Now, this doesn't make them bad parents. They do this every year. I'm sure by this time they're starting to think of Jesus as a man. You know, he's he's progressing towards manhood. He's probably traveling with his cousins and his friends. Virtually the whole village would have been making this trek so at dinner time, they start searching the family. Hey, uh, cousins, friends, aunts and uncles, you guys seen Jesus? No. So they probably head back, maybe even that, that night, towards Jerusalem. They spend three days, three days in Jerusalem looking for him. And they find him in the temple. I was talking with Pastor Carl. He said, yeah, it's probably the last place, place a parent would expect to find their 12-year-old boy in the temple. We just did the whole Passover thing. You know, you'd think he'd be at the carnival or the fair or something like that. Um, they find him in the temple. And when they find him, it says the people with him that had spent the last three days observing him, they were amazed, amazed at what he's saying and, and asking. But his parents... Not so much. Not so much. Um, in fact, uh, I'm sure that Mary wasn't quite sure whether she wanted to hug him or, or scream at him. But with some degree of gentleness, Mary confronts Jesus and she says, Why have you done this to us? 
Your father and I have been frantic. Your father and I. Mary's saying, this is your special year. This is your, you know, she's using all that heft of her, of her husband, of his father's. This is your special year. This is the year you're supposed to be sticking right by your dad's side and learning how to be like your dad and, and starting to act like an adult. This is the year. What were you thinking? She's saying, this is the year you're supposed to replicate your father. This is the year you're supposed to look like your father. Act like your father. Become like your father. And Jesus looks at her and he says, that's exactly what I'm doing. Again, a great economy of words. He says, Mom, don't you remember who I am? It's time. It's my time. But the text says his parents don't understand. They don't get it. His mom doesn't get it. His dad doesn't get it. So what does Jesus do? He gets out his whiteboard, and he diagrams the family tree and highlights not Joseph. No, no, Jesus. Jesus goes home, and he does exactly what his parents expected of him, what Mary was asking. He became Joseph's protege. He became his apprentice, his student. He was an obedient son. You see, Jesus looked at his mom, and he said, I'm God's son. I'm special. I'm unique. I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. But then he set aside the power, position, and authority, and force of being God's son. He held that in reserve. The next time, the next time we hear from, from Jesus is at age 30 at his baptism. It's 18 years later. For 18 years, he's held on to that power, position, and authority and held it in reserve. So what happens? Wait, the first part of, of uh, Luke chapter 3 tells us all about John the Baptist. This is the very next time we hear about Jesus. He's 30 years old. He's baptized by John the Baptist. And God speaks from heaven directly to him. And he's quoting scripture. God is quoting himself in scripture. And he says, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. The same teachers of the law that he was talking to back when he was 12, if they would have been there, they would have recognized that this is two different scriptures. The first one, you are my dearly loved, you are my dearly loved son, is from Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, David tells us about the great messianic king who will come and destroy all the rulers of the earth and will rule and restore the planet. The great messianic king. Those same teachers would have recognized Isaiah 42 in the second part of God's pronouncement, you bring me great joy. In Isaiah 42, Isaiah introduces us to another figure, a very mysterious figure called the suffering servant. The suffering servant will be despised and rejected and pierced and killed. It says that it's a, he is a figure who will not shout, will not raise his voice, will not crush the weakest reed. 
So in one short declaration of love for his son, God pronounces Jesus as both the great messianic king and the suffering servant. No scholar, no teacher, no rabbi, no priest, no Jew of any sort would have ever in their wildest imagination have imagined that the great messianic king and the suffering servant could possibly be the same person. How can you be a great messianic king and suffer and be rejected and die? So just to summarize, in Luke chapter 2, as a child, Jesus is shown to be God's son. In Luke chapter 3, as an adult, Jesus is proclaimed by God himself to be God's son. And what did Jesus do with that knowledge? How did he, how did he wear it? How did he show it? He's the son of Yahweh, the great I am. Did he say, respect me? Did he say, obey me? Did he say, bow to me? No, as a child, he returned to Nazareth and was obedient. As an adult, he began his ministry, and instead of saying, obey me, bow to me, respect me, he says, come follow me. Come follow me. You see, Jesus was the ultimate example of gentleness, of power, position, authority, and force held in reserve. He had his moments, don't get me wrong. John chapter 2, when he grabs the, the cords and makes a whip and cleanses his father's temple and says, get out of here. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture in John, John 18, I think, 4 and 5, where, they, where Jesus asked him in the garden, who are you looking for? And they say, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is, I am. It's translated, I am he, but he says, I am. He quotes his father, and it says, they fell back like bowling pins. And then he asked him again, and they came and took him. He just kind of did this little... Mm, flashed his God at him, bowled him over, and then closed it back up and became the suffering servant again. He was the ultimate example of gentleness. So you say, okay, uh, Jesus was gentle. Jesus was meek. I get it. Could have done the 10,000 angels thing, and he didn't do it. Um, but be, to be honest, Marshall, that's because he was Jesus. He can be gentle. You know, he has the power, position, and authority. If, if, that's your, if that's your position, well, what about me? If gentleness requires power, position, and authority, you might ask, where is mine? Well, let me ask you this. What was Jesus' message? What was his message to you? What was his message to the world? When he came to that realization, when he's 12 years old, that I am Messiah, I am the Son of God, is that ruminated and marinated in his soul and his being for the next 18 years. What was his message? It was, come, follow me. You can be my brother. You can be my sister. You can know God 
as Father, just as I do. Come and see, come and taste, come and know. Romans 8, uh, 15 to 17. Uh, I think we have that, yeah. The spirit, received, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we too are God's children. And if we're his children, we're his heirs. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We are sons. We can cry, Abba, Father. Do you know what Abba means in Greek? It's not Greek. Doesn't mean anything. You know what it means in Aramaic? It's not Aramaic. It's not translated. They just wrote it down because it's gibberish. It's baby talk. It's what a little baby calls his papa or his dada or his daddy. And God tells us that we can come to him with that incredible level of familiarity and impudence even that a child would. And call him father. Call him daddy. We are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're not heirs of Sam Walton or Bill and Melinda Gates. Or Truett Cathy and the big Chick-fil-A fortune, you know. Or the John Hershey fortune. We're, We're heirs of God. The God of creation who cast the stars in the sky and raised the mountains to their heights and sank the oceans to their depths. That's who we are heirs of. And because of that, there is, a, there is a today glory and there's a future inheritance that will blow our mind beyond your wildest imagination. So you stand in power. You stand in position. You stand in authority. That power, position, and authority is granted by God, delivered by Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? What about me, you say? You are sons of God. So what do we do with that? What, what, do, we, what do we do with this power, position, and authority? You know, I've, I've had a little more time to think about this than you. Um, but one of the things that I want to do is I want to ask God and His Spirit to grow His fruit in me, I want to, I want to, I'm seeking to be more gentle. I want to set aside my need to be first. Set aside my need to win. Set aside my need to be right, to be respected. Set aside my need to be recognized or heard. And what I would like to be able to do on top of that is, is to learn to respect others more deeply. To recognize and hear others. To recognize and hear you. To respect my wife and encourage you to respect your wife or husband. To honor, I would like to honor my employer and I encourage you, honor your employer. If you're, or if you are an employer, honor your employees. Treat your children with tenderness and patience kindness and self-control. 
Reach out to your neighbor. Reach out to your neighbor, even has the wrong vote for sign in his front yard. Okay? If you guys missed Sunday school this morning or any of these mornings, you're missing a great opportunity. We talked about winsome love, that attractive, uh, drawing in type of love. And, and we, we so desperately need, the gospel so desperately needs representatives that are attractive to the world because the world needs the gospel. They don't know they need the gospel, but they need it. And we need to be attractive instead of repulsive. There's one more way that I'm going to I'm going to try to tell you to, to cultivate gentleness in your life. I, you know, I, I, have, some, uh, I have some pain, some, some memories. I, I was just talking to Sheldon after Sunday school. Some of it has to do with exactly what we talked about this morning in Sunday school. But I have some, some issues both from my childhood and my early adult years um, that, uh, you know, nothing that created physical scars on my body or anything, but some, uh, some thoughts and, and times when, uh, gentleness was <laughs> far, far away. Um, but as I as I as I thought through that and worked through that over the years, and it, it, just for the last four or five years, I've started to realize that that I'm I'm also a father. I'm also a parent. I'm not just a child or a son who has uh, has some heart hurts or harsh experiences in my past. But I'm also a father. Um, who can take the opportunity to have the conversation with my children to make sure that I haven't been that father to them, to make sure that I wasn't, um, you know, in the times when I was harsh or overbearing, that it wasn't something that uh, created a lasting uh, memory. I've had a chance to, uh, to talk to at least three of my four boys about that um, recently. Um, I've had the conversation with my wife a lot. <laughs> Uh, asking her to forgive me for being overbearing and difficult to live with. Uh, in fact, a few weeks ago when I, when I told her I was preaching on gentleness, somehow she acquired this gentleness detection meter. Never really saw it, but I heard it going off a lot. Um, now, was that gentle? Um, or can you say that a little more gently? Um, it's one of the many gifts of preaching. You get to practice at home what you preach. And uh, I absolutely love you, honey. Thanks for letting me share that, even though I never asked you if I could. Um, and I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come forward now. But uh, I guess what I'm, what I'm asking you is this. Are you, are you sensitive enough? Are you willing to be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to ask him to bring these, these memories, these, these errors, these sins from your past when you... Um, when you were too rough or harsh with somebody, when is, are you willing to, to, to deal with that to, and make amends and apologize to your, your spouse, your children, your employees, your friends, your ex? You know, that's deep stuff, but that's godly fruit. That's what it looks like. And finally, as kind of fits our introduction, are you able to sit in a room with somebody with a red MAGA hat? Um, or a Bernie 2020 sticker, or the Pete Boomerang t-shirt, or whatever his name is, are you, can you sit in the room with that person? 
Can you sit in the room with that person and still, at the same time, be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and a self-controlled ambassador of God's kingdom? Because that's who we're called to join. That's who we're called to vote for. It's who we're called to rally around. Um, We need to get out the vote for God's kingdom. So go and be gentle. Thank you, Marshall. And I also want to thank Jerry.